What defines something as art? Some might point to a famous painting, or a statue in a gallery, a movie, or a piece of music. Some might say that art is all around us. From the smallest act to the greatest endeavor, if it's done well, it can be art. When a task stops being a chore and becomes an opportunity, when there's perfection of form, an economy of motion, an attention to detail, and a grace in execution. When you attain a discipline that completely focuses your mind on what you're doing and in the moment that you're in, that might be called art. That point in which the ordinary transforms into the extraordinary and time slips away. Where it feels like a higher level of seeing and engaging with the world, there is art. In every field from CEOs to craftsmen, financial planners to florists, designers to distillers, there are artists. When and where you'll find them, it's impossible to say, but we always know them when we see them. Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show. We are the podcast that's raising the bar and craft cocktails, and we are coming to you from Rare Steak and Seafood Restaurant here in the heart of the nation's capital, the mecca of the world po- of world politics and the home of Gin Ricky. I'm Louise Salas, here with my co-conspirator in all things cocktail, the lovely and talented Gina. Hi, Louise. Hey, hey, hey. So uh, let's get over with, let's get done with this um, podcast so we can order some steak. Yeah. Food. <laughs> Am I allowed to have that? How many carbs are in steak? None. 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 No, it's me. It's okay, the bread. Okay. It's the bread. Don't eat the bread with the steak. Fuck that, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. So, um, I know I've said this to you many times, and I'm always like, oh, no, we've got the best best podcast, the best episode, super special guest. Um, but today, I am not telling a lie. Um, today's designated drinker is a who's who of the world of whiskey, and personally, I'm pretty excited about getting schooled by a true aficionado. Um, so well, that's a nice fancy word. You like that? Aficionado. Yeah, I, do. I like it. Um, we can put that, add that to his title, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, uh, with that, please welcome to the show um, Gardner Dunn, Suntory's Senior Ambassador of Japanese Whiskey. A long title, right? It is very long, <laughs> but now but we got to put a aficionado in there now. <laughs> I didn't write it. <laughs> but I wonder what's the Japanese term for aficionado? I don't know. Well, I'll have to look that up. It's got to be a good one. You already, it's put, be me, a you already put me on the spot. Maybe already. it's just Gardner Dunn. Oh yeah, so, maybe, maybe I'll like come on the term. <laughs> they'll give you like a, they'll give you like a nice silk plaque and they'll hang it everywhere in restaurants and be like, oh, yeah. it's Gardner Dunn. Did you earn your title? That's pretty good. So um, let's talk about how one gets where you are. Um, I'm going to assume your mother did not fill your baby bottle with uh, Japanese whiskey. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to assume. Um, so tell us, how does one go from being a Pizza Hut delivery guy to a professional drummer to, uh, like we said, that aficionado of all things whiskey? I really don't know. I mean, to be honest with you, I've gotten that question or you know, people come up and be like, I want that job. I'm like... I really don't know how I got it. It's, it's more about, <laughs> I guess, just, you know, being really interested in, in spirits, but also, you know, I brewed my own beer, made my own wine, living in New York, bartending um, when I moved. Strong liver. Strong liver. <laughs> um, I keep forgetting to take my milk thistle, but um, 
You know, I don't know. I guess just that whole evolution of, of working, you know, when I moved to New York about 18, 19 years ago, uh, drumming, and then when I was off tour, I was bartending because it was the easiest way to make some money and meet girls when you're in New York, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, and free booze. So... I'll sound like uh, you know, back, check, check, check. Can't, yeah, can't back, blame me on that. At the bars I worked at in the beginning, you know, you could drink at the bar. but uh, Oh, yeah, because no bartenders drink at their no, bar ever. No. no. Uh, uh, it used to be called a family. You do like a family shot and you move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and then those things like disappeared and everyone got real serious about it. And they're like, don't do it. So now you do secretly in your coffee cups and you don't tell anybody that's what's happening. Go. Absolutely. Or just drink vodka sodas. Yeah. <laughs> because what? Because no one would ever no believe a craft, a craft cocktail person would be drinking vodka. Ever. Ever. <laughs> so, you started, you were um, you were in college, right? Well, I grew up in L.A. Yeah. And then um, I went, actually went to college in the University of Montana. I studied Big music. Sky Country. Big Sky Country. Beautiful city, actually. I, I really actually miss it. I need to go back. Um Always wanted to buy land there as well. Um, kind of a, like a hippie kind of a town, very liberal town. Um, and so music was huge, and that, that was right when like um, Mother Love Bone, all that stuff going on in Seattle. So, but I was studying jazz, and, and um, you know, I was always big. I was a big punk rocker when I grew up in, in LA. So. That was kind of morphed into doing more blues kind of stuff, and um, and then uh, yeah, I mean during the summer I was actually I borrowed my girlfriend's car and I was uh, del- delivering pizzas at, at Pizza Hut. You well, know? everyone's got to make a buck. Everyone's got to eat. Yeah, I mean right? you know, and it was before bartending, and then I was like a, a cook at a restaurant and stuff like that, and actually ran a silkscreen shop. So I know everything about silk screening. Jack of all trades. Yeah. And so... Uh, That's amazing, actually. <laughs> um, although that business keeps um, innovation. Yeah. But, but uh, innovating. But um, So, yeah, I was working at Pizza Hut. A little silver jet of golf or whatever. <laughs> Volkswagen Golf. And, um, Good thing Montana's flat, right? Totally kept breaking down on me. But there was this blues guy named Chris Hyatt, and he was doing this huge festival tour and this other guy named Freedy Johnson and um, basically they this guy Tim Bierman who actually now works for Pearl Jam is there I played in a band with him and he, he's their fan club cool. manager or whatever wow. so and Jeff and Matt the bass player had actually went to school at University of Montana and so every tour they opened Pearl Jam always started in Missoula Montana so yeah. there was a good music community actually there going back and forth and it was actually the only place to actually play, like Bob Dylan, Jerry Garcia, on your way to Spokane from wherever oh, you were coming from. Because there's not the a whole lot in between. There's not really a whole lot. Yeah. So it, it had this really cool music um, uh, atmosphere and, and influences that were coming it through. Random, Buddy Guy. When you, you say know, it. That's yeah. a big, big, huge blues. Robert Cray, Buddy Guy, um, Junior Wells, all those wow, guys came through. Cool. So. Um, well, yeah, Chris Hyatt called me up and he was just like, you know, hey, I heard you're a good drummer. I'm like, where'd you hear that from? He's like, Tim Bierman. And I'm like, oh, well, he goes, well, listen, we're doing like a two month tour. Do you want to join? I'm like, well, how much is it paying? He goes, better than Pizza Hut. <laughs> so, um, I said, I'll see you tomorrow. He's like, we leave in three days. So, you know, and, um, 
on his off time, I actually did. I, we were the largest Stevie Ray Vaughan tribute band really? in okay. the country. So I actually learned, which actually helped me with drumming quite a bit because I learned my double shuffle. And I learned controlling my left arm, my left hand. Oh, cool. Really good with, with, with shuffle, so. What is a shuffle? Yeah. All, right, all right, I don't drum. I, I usually only shuffle when I've had too much whiskey. Yeah, there's, about, <laughs> there's, there's lots of different shuffles. There's jazz shuffles, there's double shuffles, there's, you know, um, quarter note shuffles. There's all these ones where, you know, you're, you know, where you hear in a, in yeah. a, in a blues song. So. Understanding that with your left hand and some of the ghost notes and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, making a groove. And so that really helped me. And, and honestly, the drummer for Stevie Ray Vaughan. So literally, Stevie Ray Vaughan had died like two years prior. So we were doing all these festivals, playing with like Buddy Guy and all, you know, doing... I was... I lasted about six months. The guy ripped me off. Uh-oh. And... Um, but and I learned a lot. But I did learn a lot, you know. It's part of your journey. It was yeah, part of your yeah. journey. <laughs> and I started. I started playing with with some other artists, and then really started getting into the ska punk rock stuff. So actually, um, what got, year was that? I don't know. That was like the late nineties, two thousand. Yeah. Is that a huge difference? This because I. Not a music aficionado, obviously. Different than like ska and jazz. Like, is there a huge like as from a drummer's point yeah. of view, like a big leap and yeah, and we most actually good ska drummers that have some some jazz background because you have to be very technical. Well, the the the, the ska we kind of played um, and fast and fast. Yeah. Um, you know, depending on what band you're playing in, but. Um, a lot of the rock steady, like if you listen to like, you know, new bands like Hepcat and, or, you know, old bands like the Scatolites or Don Drummond or any of those, those, those are old school, you know, reversed reggae, you know, so mm-hmm. it's on the upbeat, not on the downbeat. Huh. So, but a lot of jazz in, influence on that. So, um, because, and a lot of the times, you know, all the ska bands have horns. So you have yeah. a lot of jazz influence coming into the Which bands. That's yeah. what I do like about that music. Yeah. yeah. That horn. And the only problem was when, when Scott, like we were, we were with Moon Scout Records and I was playing with uh, like the Skoidats and Mephiscopheles and the Toasters. The third wave of ska. So you had your first and your second and now it was the third. And um, became really popular. And so you'd roll into town and there'd be like, 16 bands opening up from you all from band school that just decided to join a ska band yeah and most of them were just absolute crap um but you'd have to wait like six and a half hours to get up on stage because they'd have all these ska festivals <laughs> um so did that for a while though we did we, we did this really good tour called ska against racism tour which which went all across the united states and uh, with uh, Real Big Fish and Less Than Jake and a whole bunch of those uh, bands. but um, What year was that? Did you play Chicago that year? That festival yeah. was Chicago? Yeah. They yeah. played that crazy old school, um, oh, what is the name of the theater in Chicago? Um, it's, in uh, Chicago? I keep saying oh, the old 99. The Fireside Bowling Alley? There's the other one. Like the, Metro? Uh, it's got like the awning. It used to be like a, like a movie theater. It's been too long. That's a long time ago. Many, many years ago. I saw like the old 99s. I've seen like, I've seen a lot of bands there and I've been to Chicago a lot. We we love ska. That's great. That's really random. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, Chicago. So like the Blue Meanies, you know? So we did a big tour with the Blue Meanies and and all those guys. They played in Philly a lot too. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're from Chicago. That's so great band. Random. Yeah. 
Okay, sorry. Go ahead, sorry, sorry. But you still play now, right? I do. But you're different genre. Yeah, I started getting into uh, a lot more more alternative and, and much more how would you say viable and more um, uh, profitable there you go well sellable <laughs> <laughs> like, so instead of like nine guys in a, in a butt in a van it went from four guys in a, in a nice coach yeah <laughs> so uh, a lot of like hired gun stuff you know so you know it's all over the map um, with some of the bands cool. um, yeah. That's cool. And I, now I just do like some studio work. So I still have my drums or a couple kits, and I have a studio in Brooklyn, or just a rehearsal space. I work with a producer in Connecticut, Michael Patzig. So he's doing a lot of country music. So I've done a lot of recent, like just laying some tracks down for some country. He sends them off to Mud Lang, which is his, you know, the, that big producer. And if they like it, then they'll pick up the, the new artist that he's tracked. If they like my drumming, they'll either hire the drummer in Nashville or they'll fly me out to do it. So, but wow, it's it's so cool. It's so random. I'm also you know I'm traveling so much with this job that a lot of the times I miss some stuff. So it's you have really to, you cool have to be there to... right when they call you, or they'll find sixteen Somebody's, other drummers yeah, right waiting. In yeah. the, it's really cool that you've been able to um, pursue both passions and live this life that allows you to do music and also with. The yeah, drumming, I think, was number one. I mean, obviously, you know, that's will always be that. Of course. You know? um, but fine spirits and, and wine. and. So how did you make the great. leap from being a drummer to um, where you are today? Well, like, so I, I was just in, uh, yeah, I was just in New York, and, and I, you know, started started getting into that whole, you know, which we all hate, mixology word, terminology. <laughs> I love but, the air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but uh, you know I started doing some competitions and I I I entered the first one 42 Below Cocktail World Cup in New Zealand and I ended up going to that and um, with Thrasher with Todd Thrasher oh really John John LaMare yep what a crew and uh, (laughs) man yeah I think we uh, we, they used to take you up in a helicopter um, to the Remarkables which is about 8,000 feet up and drop you off in the middle of the snow, mystery box, go down five minutes to make a cocktail, hop back in the helicopter, and then mix the cocktail while you're hanging out of the helicopter at like 5,000 feet. Is this just to, to say that you've done it? Yeah, yeah. It's like, and I can literally say that. <laughs> and job. then there's crocodiles snapping at your feet. I mean, like, what else are they adding here? I can literally say snow John. crocodiles, Gina, just, snow crocodiles. I can literally say John LaMare from Sweet Liberty. He owns this bar in Miami, killer bar. Um, he, um, but I think we, we single-handedly shut that down because him and I both unharnessed <laughs> and jumped out of the helicopter when we got close to the snow. Oh, good it's God. It's like eight feet of snow. You couldn't hurt yourself. Um, so they nixed that. Um, Gee, I can't imagine why. I know. I can't I imagine know. why. And of course, completely wasted. Um, That's a great idea. Let's do uh, it. Yeah. You know, all the 42 Below team, amazing people. A lot of them actually have gone on to other things like Charlotte Voicey and mm-hmm. and um, Jacob and Raj. All of them, actually, I met them when they oh, worked cool. for 42 Below. Um, and then um, came back and actually gave a business plan to Jeff Ross, which was the owner of 42 Below at that time. And then I started working for 42 Below. So that's how my first step into the business was um, doing the Cocktail World Cup competitions across the the United States. I did five competitions. 
I helped arrange them. Um, I didn't pick anyone. The, the judges did. Yeah. But um, and then yes. I and then I was their mom. <laughs> to oh head back God. to New Zealand, which I think they all really regretted because I was like pretty, I would probably say um, influential in both, all of them getting completely messed up. <laughs> yeah, but it was cool. It was a music element to uh, the, the heats. So if you made the heats, like you kind of pick music and then present your drink with music for 42 Blah. Yeah, yeah. So like you had to perform, you had to perform and then you had to do like you, your drink had to be really fucking good, and then yeah. for you had to present, you had to do everything, and you had to do it to music, and then that was pretty interesting. And you had to time it. I'm really sad to see it gone because um, it was a great competition. It was 42 bartenders from from like I don't know, it could be you know 12 to 16 countries. So to this day, right now, I still keep in touch with a lot of those guys. Thank God for cool. social media, but. Um, so one positive thing about social media is uh, is that connection. Um, so you can go like anywhere in the world right now and at least have one bartender that, <laughs> you know, know, I know. That's awesome. So, yeah. so it's like sleepaway camp for bartenders. Basically. Sort of. <laughs> no, now they have a sleepaway camp for bartenders, actually. Like they do. They run them up. Yeah, camp run them up. They put them all in cabins and shit. Yeah. Um, that doesn't sound like anything's going to go wrong there. No. I, I'm surprised <laughs> I don't run them up babies yet, but whatever. Uh, oh, we just don't know about yeah, them. Yeah, that's what I say. But do, yeah, do you know about them? It's the big thing. 42 Below ended up selling to Bacardi. And um, I was pretty low on the totem pole. I just, you know, had, a, what, a year in. Um, and I was just doing as a, as a, I guess, a consultant kind of a thing. So, um so I actually, you know, was back to bartending here and there, and, and I actually went back on tour, and then I came back, and I met this wonderful girl, um, Keely Smith, who used to work with Campari, um, and she actually approached me to do Midori Ambassador. And actually, in the beginning, I and I just started, I took the bar course, the beverage mm-hmm. alcohol resource, and so I really started becoming, and I had opened up this uh, Mexican restaurant, with Sue up there in, um, uh, in New York. And um, I really started getting spirits. And I, you know, because I took the bar course and I'm hanging out with Steve Olson, I'm doing the tequila program at this bar. I really didn't want to work on a cordial. Not that I didn't like Midori. I just didn't, I knew what the job entailed, which was me hiring. Okay, well, this isn't, this isn't so bad. Okay, Me I hiring hot, hot promo girls to stand around. <laughs> I'm sure it was really so hard for yeah, you. This is, I do shots. This was nine years ago. So, you know, I, you know, I, I actually said I mean, majority no. majority highballs are pretty good. They are. Um, but, um, you know, and so basically I was just like, I, you know, I, I still need to look around. And I still had a, some, some touring to do. So... I actually said no, and then she came back to me like six months later, and she showed me the whole portfolio, which was Yamazaki 12. And actually, um, I would say Suntory's um, failure is the Zen Green, we had a Zen Green Tea, which was absolutely, um, it never did well, because it looked like muddy water once you mixed it with anything. Um, Funny how that plays a role in all of that. Yeah, (laughs) so I... Basically, had to, I cut my teeth on, on Midori for a while and Zen Green Tea, but they noticed that, you know, maybe an even uh, 2% rise in sales with Midori, but they noticed like 750% rise with Yamazaki 12. Gotcha. So after a year, they're like, I think we should, I think you should focus on whiskey and yeah. Yamazaki. And, and that at, at that point, now we had had, we have Yamazaki 12 and 18. 
So I went national, and then I just started doing that for a couple of years, and uh, we launched uh, Hakshu and uh, Hibiki. Um, and you did so well that you can't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I mean, I know it's, Jesus it's, it's, Christ. it's kind of my old joke. I mean, I, I really couldn't give it away. I used to have to convince people it wasn't made out of rice. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now there's Japanese whiskey made out of rice, <laughs> which is a, a hard subject for me to talk about. But, um, you know, it, it, I couldn't literally, it was, uh, I think it was thirty two ninety nine a bottle for 12. You know, wow. Lucky 12. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, we used to do case deals. We used to do case deals for twenty nine ninety nine. You know, wow. we used to call it the magic case deal. Um, uh, they used to put it in the sake section at liquor stores. They used to yeah. tell them, "Can you please put it in single malt section?" It says single malt on it, and they would literally look at me and say, "No." So I remember a lot of those people. Usually, that was the people in Texas. But um, those are the same mezcal people, you know what I mean? Yeah. People said mezcal is not a spirit. You're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, about? so tell me, uh, and listeners, about Japanese whiskey. Then, it, obviously, it's not it's not made out of rice, or, or what we're talking about today isn't. So, tell us a little bit about about the product that you are the ambassador for. I'll well, Suntory is, um, you know, the the. I think the father of Japanese whiskey, um, you know, was the first distillery in Japan, right outside of Kyoto, Yamazaki Distillery, 1923. Wow. Um, started producing whiskey in 1924. Released our first whiskey in 1929 called Sherafudu, which means white label. Um, although that whiskey, um, even though leading up to it, we knew that we couldn't make a whiskey that was peaty or smoky or because really there there was blended whiskey that um Suntory had actually made leading up to that we bought whiskey and we actually blended it actually um for the uh, u.s troops back in oh. the 20s which is kind of interesting cool. or, or the, from like 1910 to 1917 don't don't quote me on the dates please but, um, <laughs> i didn't know that that's really yeah cool. and i just found a bottle on ebay and i and Oh, I got wow. the bottle and it literally says for the U.S. troops. Um, was there whiskey still in it? No. No, no. Just unfortunately, because uh, it was from 1917. Was so. the bottle sealed and like done? No, or just, no. Okay, but so. just the cork the was bottle. still. I mean, all the, awesome. all the labeling, yeah. kind of a cool old bottle. Um, so our founder Shinjiro Tori actually really started making. You know, he he started blending whiskey, but we didn't have. Um, we didn't have the means to make it at that point. So when we opened our distillery, um, but a lot of people drank sake and soju and beer, and they didn't really understand some of the whiskey that was coming off uh, off the boats. You know, it was probably, you know, pretty pricey. Um, and depending where it was coming from, either, you know, decent or terrible. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, especially some of the peaty whiskey back in, in, in the early uh, 1900s. So... And the Japanese palate just didn't understand that. So Shinjiro Tori knew that he couldn't make a whiskey that was going to be, you know, taste like medicine. We all yeah. we all know when we first taste our first Lafleurig. Yeah. We're leading up to it. We at least prepare ourselves for us. You, you've <laughs> smelled it. You've had whiskey before. Now you're going to go on to single malt. I would say nine out of ten don't like it initially, and then of course you grow to love it. Um, but if you've never even understood what whiskey was. We had to make a whiskey for the Japanese palate. Um, so actually, unfortunately, the first one we launched, Sherafudu, we actually gave um, 
production, our production manager, Mazataka Takatsuru, who you guys might know from Nika. Can you say that three times fast, please? I know, no. Uh, well, <laughs> um, Not after two drinks. <laughs> and I haven't had any yet. Uh, Maybe that's part of the problem. I mean, we can, we can remedy that as so, we're talking. You want me to do that? Sure. Keep talking, and I'll, and I'll remedy that, and we'll go over what I'm making. Okay. Done. I can't talk about the whiskey when I'm not drinking. You can't, can't talk about it. You know, tongue tied. Um, so, so uh, you know, I think the main thing to talk about is is that you know that balance with um, with our whiskey um, complexity, subtle, refined yet complex. But um, when we first launched that whiskey, uh, Mazataka actually he felt he actually learned how to make whiskey. He was a young Japanese guy. Um, he was our first employee that Shinjiro hired. Oh. Uh, so he helped our, do our production um, and help um, with our stills. So he, he was a Jap- young Japanese guy who fell in love with the whiskey in Scotland when he went there to study. Um, uh, I can't actually remember what he went there to study. But he went to University of Glasgow and he was a scientist. He went to drums. He was drums and music. <laughs> He, you know, he was a scientist basically. Um, so he was, he was a production manager, you know. Um, so he fell in love with Scotch whiskey, which was at that time all pretty peaty. Um, before the kilns, you know, everything was smoked with peat. Um, so we gave him kind of um, liberties to design the first whiskey, or at least help with making the first whiskey. And the first one we launched um, was really cheap. So naturally, it actually turned out to be an epic failure. We, we didn't sell much at all. His contract was done, and um, he left the company. And Shinjiro Tori went back to the drawing table because he had actually made blended whiskey before, just not produced in Japan, but a combination of uh, also making an, uh, a fortified plum wine called Akadama back in 1907. So his natural where you had Mazataka as a scientist, but then you had Shinjiro who actually learned back in the early 1900s on how to blend. So that was his natural gift was blending. So he went back to the drawing table and then we, we launched Kakuben in 1937. We'd had some stuff that we released in between that time. But in 1937, when we, when we released Kakuben, which means square bottle, yeah. um, it's still the number cool. one selling whiskey in, in Japan. I think we do four million cases a year. Wow. Um, just in Japan market. It's the only thing I drink when I go over there. Um, well, I'll be there soon. Yeah, well, okay, well you have to go to, to, to uh, a Tachinomi, which means uh, drinking standing. You have to go to a highball bar. Oh, cool. Uh, when, I, when I hear Tachinomi, I think, uh, no touchy me. <laughs> <laughs> or you pay to touch more. I don't know, oh. I don't know. <laughs> Oh boy. Sorry, sorry. It's uh, it's it's the whiskey. Yeah. It can't risky, be Gina. Risky. Just it's in risky. Thailand. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. Um, so after we released that, it really started to take off, and then the highball, back in the 1950s, really started taking off. Really inherently, um, you know, for two reasons: Japanese, they don't have the enzyme that most of them don't have the enzyme to break down alcohol. Mm-hmm. All the flushing cheeks. Yeah, and um, so high alcohol drinks, they don't particularly like, and especially some of the younger um, crowds, they don't particularly like um, that high alcohol drink. So the highball was a natural progression. Beer sales were crazy up. Whiskey sales were down. So they basically took what was started in the U.S., which was the highball Mm -hmm. back in the 1920s, 
um, and took that and as all you know you get any all you bartenders out there you see a really good Japanese bartender the ritual the, the way that they posture themselves the way that the, the the bartending tools they use are just incredible so they took that highball and brought it to another level with really really high carbonated quality soda a lower dilution so like a, a one to three um, dilution is such a huge part really tall and really quality ice so when you have all of that together um, you have this you've taken whatever the highball was which sometimes especially if you watch old movies you would do a highball but you would put one cube in you know yeah and you wouldn't even fill the glass all the way up it was just a spritz you know like if you look like old Casablanca. Um, no so, pressure. No pressure here, by the way. <laughs> nice. Beautiful. Thank you. You're um, So all of that in combined, you know, whiskey, whiskey sales started to, uh, to go up. And actually, we were, uh, we were here back in the 80s. We actually had a sign in Times Square. If you, if you go look at old, the old Jason, um, Friday the 13th comes to New York. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. I found it on YouTube. If you, um, Jason's kicking these uh, these kids' boombox in the middle of Times Square. Yeah. Right as he's kicking the boombox, you can actually see Suntory Royal. Oh, product and, placement. Yeah, right above the <laughs> cup of noodles. And uh, yeah, a huge sign. And actually, Dale DeGroff still to this day comes up to me and goes, because he was actually bartending at the Rainbow Room yep. during that time in yep. the 80s. And that's where they used to sell Suntory Royal. And he was like, when are you bringing Suntory Royal back? I'm like, I don't think we are, but it's still available in Japan. Um, so, but what happened was is gin and vodka yeah. in the 90s, uh, late 80s and early 90s, um, basically killed whiskey sales in the U.S. because everyone started drinking uh, vodka uh, martinis, and gin and tonics, and Seagram's and all that stuff. So basically, we, we actually took uh, Suntory Royal out of the market. Wow. Well, let's bring it back to this glass that you just presented us, Gina. Um, it's very yeah. beautiful. Please tell us. So my favorite thing about highballs is that legitimately they're just easy. Like, yeah. really, a highball could be anything, ginger ale, soda, whatever. Um, my favorite part about this whiskey is that I love it because it, like, stands up no matter how citrusy, not citrusy, gingery, whatever you want to do. So we have the um, Suntory um, Tokai, which is fabulous, like, approachable, Really a nice way into, at least I think, yeah, to Jack. Toki. Toki. I know, I don't want, I really, yeah. I always say like, to, I don't know why I say that. I say that. That's okay. You're still Toki. so cute. It doesn't Probably matter. Probably because of well, the eye, but, but okay. it's Toki. 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 All right, I'm starting again. Suntory Whiskey Toki. Yeah. Okay, anyway. We all learn something new every day. So I made, um, so I do appreciate the high carbonation, but I do it a little bit different. So today we're um, traveling a little bit, right? So I did a um, soda siphon. So I knew that. And I wanted to do like a finer uh, gas where it's kind of like not, it's like bubbly as you think. So I actually put champagne in there. Mm-hmm. So no water, champagne, a little bit of lemon, um, base that we make with lavender. And then it kind of brings out the really beautiful subtle notes of of the toki and what's really beautiful is that the, um, the little bit of smoke that's on there at the end that, that like that just like it kind of like washes over your palate so like you get all of the citrus up front and then that goes away and you're left with your whiskey so your whiskey's yep. not hidden and sometimes they like if it's too sugary it's like you lose your whiskey 
So yeah, to get Gina's recipe, we know where to go. We just go to designateddrinker.show, designateddrinker.show. You'll get all of the tips and how to. So what do you think? I really like it. It's really gentle too. Um, it is elegant. very nice. Yeah, and that's I a can, nice word, elegant. That's a nice yeah. way. Of the honey is a great play on it, um, and the champagne's a great play. Yeah. Well, I think you get a five stars on this one, Gina. Oh, yeah. You know he's gonna critique From me. The, later, like, oh, well, I'm not. No, I'm not. Really. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's beautiful. Nice. So let's talk about why you're really here in BC and. Uh, honoring us with your presence um, about what's here at Rare State, what we are uh, debuting. Yeah, I I'm, I'm, drove down to uh, to launch it at this awesome uh, steakhouse, Rare, and uh, it's our debut and our launch party tonight. So um, we're actually going to showcase the highball and the okay. machine. So, so what yeah. is this little machine? What does this little magic machine do? Well, it carbonates, uh, so it started off in Japan. Um, basically, when you go over to some of the bars over there, you can, when I first went over there, you could, you could, you know, see a guy pulling a, a tap system. It looks like a beer tap system, um, but it's not. It's a, it's a carbonated, high carbonated, you just emphasize that, a yeah. highly carbonated, um, perfect dilution. You can set the dilution highball. Um, that he serves you in like three seconds, you know. So. So do you think you put one of these in my house then? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm telling you. So you know, you I, work I, your network. You I work. wanted one for the last seven years, and now we finally um, are able to bring that experience over here. So. That's awesome. Um, and and really just um, kind of educate on on what a highball is, and you know. Have fun with it, and have that like beautiful, elegant drink again. Um, and where, are, where in the U.S. are the can people actually find these? When um, Gina's given us a way how to use the the whiskey at home. Um, yeah, well, I think uh, like if you're in San Francisco, you could find one at Nihon. No. Oh. Um, yeah, and then in L.A., you can find one in Seven Grand, um, nice. New York or Chicago, Mamatoro. Um, in um, the first one actually was at Kinfolk in Brooklyn but we also have one at Ipudu which is my favorite ramen in New York oh uh, nice up, Upper I, East I haven't been I need uh, to go yeah you have to Upper East Side um, so we're we're slowly preaching the gospel of the highball I think it's um, interesting here too you're bringing it into a steakhouse where most of the places you spoke you, you mentioned were obviously Asian food Obviously. Well, not really, actually. No? Just just Ipudu. Well, Mamataro and Ipudu, but, um, well, I guess you're right. Neon, <laughs> but Seven Grand. Um, yeah, I had Seven Grand. Yeah. Kinfolk. Um, you know, we have, we have a lot of places that are more cocktail-driven as well. Is that what it is? Um, I think we really find, we want the, the places we've decided where the machines or we've approached or they've approached us is something where we want it's raise the level on, on uh, education and and really just high quality. So Great. It doesn't really have to be an Asian restaurant, but no. kind of leaning that way, I think, in the beginning. Sure, sure, which makes total sense. Well, with that, Gina? Well, I went over to the bar and tried the highball. Well, I think then what we need to do is just close up shop here and go where we should be and try this out. First hand. Done. All right, so Sweet. you know what that means? It means it's closing time. I know. 
we don't have to go home because obviously we're just going over to the bar. But we have to get the hell out of here. Thank you for coming. Can you say that in Japanese? What? Thank you. Get the hell out of here? <laughs> I don't know it. <laughs> what about what about thank you for coming? <laughs> thank you for coming? Yeah. Uh, don't worry, I got those because I lost. <laughs>